glad you can join us today, Bob. Uh, I know it's been like you feel you need to wear a flak jacket sometimes with all the uh, the bad stuff being said about the company. But uh, yes, it's uh, the, the I think particularly annoying are the mainstream media talking heads, uh, usually on both coasts, who pontificate that this is like self-inflicted injury because we just failed to produce the kind of vehicles that the American public wants and yeah. never once mentioned that selling cars and trucks in large quantity has not been our problem. Our problem was that we were swamped by the legacy costs. Yes, yeah. What, what will change in terms of GM's relationship with Opel in regards to product development? Well, hopefully nothing. Um, and we did, as you know, this uh, uh, Russian consortium plus uh, Magna uh, took a controlling share of Opel, which, which we wanted. But um, what we're going to try to achieve, obviously, is... Um, and, and since they, if it had been fiat, we might have gotten into big arguments about whose architecture do we use, whose engine do we use, and, and fiat might have wanted to achieve regional synergies, whereas we want to achieve global synergies, and that could have been a point of conflict. But with Magna basically having no technology of their own, yeah. uh, I think it's going to be very, very easy for us to maintain all of the operational efficiencies, the architecture sharing efficiencies, powertrain sharing efficiencies, and I, I believe uh, at this point we are confident that we can maintain this uh, the Opel organization under its new ownership in the global General Motors product development process. So that's a critical component going forward then. You needed that to happen that way. Yes, I mean I don't think it would have been a fatal blow but it would have introduced inefficiencies and it would have gone back to the old way of Opel developing unique products that have no applicability to any other place in the world and it would be hugely wasteful. I think uh, you know the financial pressure is on any on everybody with these re with the reduced industry demand and uh, the only logical thing for the new owners to do is to participate fully in the General Motors uh, technology and architecture sharing plan and it's going to be more complicated than it was because we're going to have to write cross licensing agreements and all that stuff but you know the lawyers will figure that out. So uh, GM has cross-pollinated its technical staffs and managers between NAO and GME. Will those kinds of assignments continue? Uh, and what will become of GME people who are working at NAO? Well, that's I, the, the, the short answer is I don't know. Okay. Um, but again, common sense dictates that we continue that exchange and it's going to require agreements by both parties. And then it's going to be a, a question of of who pays what salary when and who pays the cost of living supplement. But once again, these are administrative details that can be worked out by human resources and the tax people. But very clearly, we just like we want to keep the technology exchange going, we want to keep the people exchange going. Okay. With the elimination of Saturn, Saab, Hummer, and Pontiac, how are you changing the alloca allocation of resources you put in the remaining brands? Well, um, I think in terms of financial resources, uh, the bulk gets eaten up by Chevrolet, which is the global brand. Right. Um, it's the largest brand. Uh, before we had the collapse, it was heading for 5 million units all, all on its own. I would say number two is 
in terms of resource allocation is going to be Cadillac because um, we certainly don't want a short Cadillac when it comes to great new vehicles and it is starting to emerge as a, as a global brand at least in, in China and other places. And then of course there's Buick. Uh, Buick is important to us because of China but the, a lot of the resources that are required for Buick are going to be shared with SGM, so that some of that uh, Buick future model money does not come out of our pocket. But Buick will be, believe me, amply looked after in terms of new product. And finally, we have GMA, GMC, uh, which probably requires the least in terms of funds to maintain brand distinctiveness because their architectures are always shared with Chevrolet. And, mm -hmm. and if you look at the full-size pickup trucks and sport utilities, it doesn't really require that much change to establish a, GM, a GMC image versus a Chevy image. And that's a very profitable component for General Motors. Absolutely. It? That's and what people you know, didn't know. Yeah. And, and when this whole thing started, people were saying, well, I'll get rid of GMC. Yeah. But you, that's a very problem. Well, I'll uh, tell you, when the uh, people from the federal government or the automotive task force looked at the numbers, they very quickly changed their mind on GMC. <laughs> and they changed their mind on Buick, frankly, when they looked at the margins for Buick products. They very quickly changed their mind on, on uh, the future of Buick. And, and I, you know, I don't think uh, people realize how, how much you're going to do with Buick. That's going to be quite an exciting component of GM going forward, right? For, for a long time, um, Buick was not terribly well taken care of. It, they just sort of got large, bland sedans, which were perfectly all right, but there was nothing aesthetically or, uh, or vehicle dynamically exciting about them. Consequently, they didn't appeal to people like you and me, and they, they went to usually upper middle class retirees. Uh, and, and, and of course, those people, that's a, a dangerous demographic. I'm part of it myself, uh, because ultimately we're going to slip off the end of the demographic table and not be replaced by anybody. So it was imperative that we rejuvenate Buick and, and really give some thought to the essence of the Buick brand. And, and when we started looking at Buick designs, we really went back to Harley Earl's Y job. And then you'll remember uh, the, 40, the 41 and 42 fastback coupes with the long right. fender lines. And during the great period of Buick, it's always been all about fluid, fluid, very romantic, sweeping lines, uh, you know, almost sort of, almost gothic shapes. And uh, we got back to that with the Enclave. And of course also blessed it with a superior chassis and a great interior. And the Enclave is, is a, really a big hit among semi-luxury crossovers with people who are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. So yeah. that had finally cracked through the age barrier and the new lacrosse it's just a sensational car. Yeah, sensational car. So people in this market should look forward to to more Buicks. More not, Buicks. More not, Buicks rather than fewer. Because I think people here just think, well, Buick, China, the China's going to get all the stuff. But I don't think they're aware that well, Buicks some of are it, come some of it. Too. I mean, in the fullness of time, we may get to the point where we can bring some Chinese Buicks over to the United States. I th I think if the dollar stays weak. 
and uh, China doesn't make progress on the cost of their supplier industry, then that may be financially difficult. But it would be nice if we could exchange with China because then, every, then everybody wouldn't have to tool everything. Uh, China has a gorgeous, fantastic new Buick monospace vehicle, which we showed at the Beijing Auto Show, right, uh, which will not come to the States um, with a phenomenal interior, but it doesn't, it doesn't comply with U.S. regulations, so we won't be able to use it. It's, all, it's actually off of the old GMT 200 architecture, mm -hmm. which, was, which, was, which was our old minivans, and it, it shows what you can do with a, with a clever redo. Yeah. Do you ever envision a scenario down the road where a, a Pontiac model might be brought off the shelf or not? Well, um, it depends who's in charge. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if it were me, I would be seriously tempted to bring Pontiac back as a, as a niche brand, uh, do very few of them, and it could be Pontiac by GMC or something like that to where you could do one model. You, you'd never establish another franchise. But again, that's me with my personal fondness for Pontiac and where we've taken Pontiac in the last uh, couple of years with cars like the Pontiac G8, the Solstice and the Solstice Coupe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think those three vehicles in and of themselves would, would form the essence of a niche brand. But you know what? Um, we just can't do that. And yeah. uh, this is where my heart would say, do it. And cooler heads would say, look, Bob, yeah. We're out of Pontiac. Yeah, Don't, I know. Let it go. I'm and one of those Pontiac people, but that's okay. Same here. So yeah. I suggest you buy a Pontiac GXP coupe just like I'm going to do <laughs> because you better get one before they're all gone. So um, you, you spoke quite highly with the Washington uh, task force in that they've been quick studies. Uh, yes. Well, they're extremely smart people, obviously. Yeah. and. The, the head of the actual operating task force is a gentleman by the name of Harry Wilson, who is very successful in his, um, I guess, investment banking business. Um, as a, a former Marine officer, which always plays well with me. Yeah. And I found him to be genuinely interested in what is it we have to do to make General Motors successful. Not what is, what is it that we have to do to make General Motors produce nothing but green cars. Yeah. There, was, there was not a hint of ideology in anything he said. He just said, hey, we're here to help you and in some cases force you to restructure in a way that's going to make this company viable at much, much lower industry volumes. And that means you're going to have to get rid of batch of dealers, you're going to have to close plants, you're going to have to get rid of some brands. And uh, that was basically the only agenda. And um, I, I would say my impression was that that team is highly supportive of our capability to continue to produce a broad line of vehicles, some smaller than today. And just in case fuel, fuel prices skyrocket again, we've got stuff like the Chevy Spark over there that would get about 50 miles per gallon highway. I think right now at today's fuel prices, that'd be a tough sell. But um, in the future, who knows? So we're going to be protected at the low end. At the same time, we're not going to give up the things where we have, I think, the, the most expertise of anyone in the business, which is full-size pickup trucks, full-size sport utilities, large crossovers, Camaros, Corvettes. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't want to give that up. Well, we so they got that, right? They understood the, Absolutely. That. And okay. one of the, you would have loved this when we took uh, Harry Wilson and the team through the design building, and we were going to 
um, we were going to go into the studio where we had all the lineup of, of future small cars and high mileage, very small sport utilities. And sitting out in the hall was uh, the Cadillac, a foam model of the Cadillac CTS V Coupe. And that had enormous stopping power. I mean, the whole tour ended, or the whole tour came to a stop. And uh, I sort of said, well, moving right along. And they said, no, no, wait a minute. What's this? When's it coming out? How much horsepower? What's it going to cost? So with, with that amount of enthusiasm expressed for a vehicle that some people would call politically incorrect, yeah. I, I sort of knew that we were in pretty good hands. So they understood that uh, these companies can't exist by selling Look, shiny, happy, smiling Absolutely. Cars. I yeah. mean, these are sound businessmen. And uh, Harry Wilson is, as I say, an extremely smart and very personable guy. And, and he realizes that this is not a socialist economy where uh, where the government says we will produce Wartburgs and Trabants yeah. and, and we will keep everything else out and people will buy those because government motors only manufactures those. Heck, we're in a, we're in a free market where there are dozens, if not, if not close to 50 brands that people can pick from. And why should they pick the, a green vehicles with a high price tag from a, that that are produced by a government mandated, but through government mandates. I mean, these people believe me, and and this is one of the things that annoys me about some of the television coverage we've gotten, um, where it's well now we're really in for it. The the, the federal government is going to run General Motors. No, they're not. And I, I, I am not. As, as many people know, I'm a, a by by nature not a Democrat. But I do believe uh, President Obama, when he says we have no desire to be in the, in the automobile industry, we don't want to run it. All we want is for General Motors to come out of this as a much healthier, much more powerful company with a good balance sheet, able to return to greatness and repay the government loans. The, the feds want their money back, and I don't blame them. Oh, good. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Yeah, thanks, Peter. As good always, great fun. Good great fun you. talking to you. Ed, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, I know you're uh, cranking away, and uh, the best part about this business is design never sleeps. So, uh, well, it really does, in particular yeah. when you've got studios around the world. <laughs> that is the truth. Now, with the elimination of the four brands, uh, are you going to have a dramatically uh, re reduced number of programs to work on, or are you going to be busier than ever, or all your facilities going to be used? Or? Well, you can say that you know the number of vehicles. I mean, it, the number of vehicles is reduced, but you know, I consider this a real opportunity to focus on our four core brands in a way like we haven't been able to do, I'd say, in decades. Really, right. I mean, the work going on in Cadillac is exciting—a whole new generation—and I could talk about all the brands, but. No, it really, to answer your question, it's, I think it really helps us. So um, you hinted earlier that uh, a lot of exciting things happening for Buick. I don't think the enthusiasts out there really know how exciting this is. And, and you, you say your studio is just cranking out some unbelievable stuff. Well, I, I consider it to be a real renaissance with the, right. the Buick brand. And I don't care what assignment I give our designers, you know, our young designers, our designers with many years of experience, they just do incredible work. The proposals are really exciting. 
I never see a bad sketch when it comes to Buick. I mean, they are all well done. They have emotion, they have passion, they're bold. Uh, that's what Buick brand's all about, I'd well, say. Well, Buick's always been about flow. You know, it just seems yeah. like uh, we were talking about the Bill Mitchell Silver Arrow 3 and all the, the historic Buicks. And is that the direction you're going with it? It is very much. A lot of those same principles because, you know, it's Buick's uh, history has been rather checkered. They've had their highs, they've had their lows, but the highs have been spectacular with, you know, with Skylarks and Rivieras. And when our designers know and understand those vehicles as well as the Y job, I mean, the inspiration's great. And cars like the LaCrosse are done where you can watch a line just flow along the body side and around the rear of it. Every line is like an artist's brush stroke. Mm. I mean, it's true art. Now, do you find the young designers when you, what, what happens when you know that these young designers are seeing something like the Y job mm. in the flesh for the first time? Yeah. What's that like for them? Do they spark to it? Uh, it's. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, they, they get it right away. They get it and they run with it. I mean, they really run with it. I just, I mean, it's what I said. I mean, the, the work is just spectacular. And you can see, yeah, you can see a bit of a boat tail in the work they do in the sweep spear. Right. But it's all done in a very contemporary way. It's not throwback at all. Okay. Do you think uh, GM Design will ever get into designing for let's say a Roger Penske for Saturn, or is that, mm. is that even on the table or remotely um, That possible? hasn't been discussed, yeah. but you know, this is a new world and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I look forward to any opportunity that may come our way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure, if someone brings you big money to design, sure. you know, we're, I in, mean, why not? we're I mean, in the design business. The talent business, is yeah. there, I mean, it, it is, it's a spectacular team of people, really is good. So you're still gonna be actively doing Opal uh, design is that directly because they don't really Magna yeah, can't the, do that and the details of that have not okay. really come out yet but um, you know it, it really looks like it's going to be a very good relationship good I feel good about the relationship I feel good about the the future of Opal as well but we'll be able to we'll be able to work together on an off topic you, we were just talking about the original stingray which you have yeah. uh, graciously uh, directed the restoration of. How is that project, how has that been satisfying for you? Well, it was, I love the history of GM design. You know, although I live in the future, the history right. of design is very important to me. I grew up reading about and seeing photographs of the work of Bill Mitchell and uh, my first five years here, I worked under Bill Mitchell, a great designer, great work done under his leadership. Corvettes are important to me. That Stingray, the 59 Stingray is an amazing car, just unbelievable, every detail about it. And it was a race car, it wasn't done as a concept right. car, it was done as a race car, it's a spectacular car. And one of the first things I did when I took over design was I instructed the guys to restore that vehicle. Let's get it's, on that. It's that important. And people forget that it was originally red. Right? Yes, Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah. And um, the other thing, people, it's too bad. People, not very many people have been next to the car. Mm -hmm. they, they aren't aware of the scale of the Sting, the original Stingray is yeah. so compact yeah. and it, so low and just. Uh, it's size and proportions a bit different than the 63 Stingray, which right. you know, came several years later. Yeah. But you're right, you're absolutely right. It, it's size, it's proportion. 
the details, even the shape of the windscreen, the way it was, uh, it's beautiful, yeah. absolutely beautiful. The details on the headrest, this, yeah, uh, yeah, just. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and frankly, every Corvette since then has yeah. been inspired by that car. You see it in the C6, you know, in the fender shapes and all, there's a, a hint of that original. And, and that's, and uh, that must help your designers, young designers, because you get some real talented kids from out of school. Yeah, and. Yeah. Um, it must be interesting to take them to see the Stingray and... and uh, well, to see that car, and we keep it around here. It, right. it is here. We've got a very special garage uh, mechanical assembly. Where yeah, I know. <laughs> a lot of the historic concepts and our latest concepts are always in there, and it's, it's just great to go in there and get inspired by the cars. Now, uh, Mitchell used to have a... He'd put something out on the pad unannounced or just... Mm -hmm. so that the designers were just walking around. They'd say, you know, what's yeah. that? Do you still surprise your designers sometimes? Uh, we do that in a somewhat different way. We'll, uh, you know, there are alcoves in, in our hallway where every now and then we'll just drop in a car. It may be one that was created in the studios here, or if we have shipped in a design from one of the other studios around the world for s some business purpose, well, we'll put it on display in the halls for a while. And it's like, wow, there it is. I mean, you may have seen it in virtual reality or seen some sketches of it, but when you see the actual vehicle, I mean, it, well, it just fires up the truth. That's interesting. I, I wondered how you, you know, because, you know, the work is exciting, but keeping them up and, and just yeah. kind of inspiring them and, and doing little things like that. I wondered how you Well, there, there's that. a lot you can do, and there's a lot you have to do yeah. for the design to keep them fired up. Sharing ideas, you know, in VR, being able to look at designs from another studio, or you know, sometimes we'll ship one of the vehicles done here to another location, and you know, oh, they absolutely love it. That's cool. Yeah. So, do you plan on going to any? Just on a personal, do you plan on going to any car shows in the near future? Or? Well, I try to hit as many as I can. You know, the big auto shows, uh, really around the world. But I mean, I, you know, are you going to go to Eyes on Design? Oh, or? I'll be at Eyes on yeah, Design. Yeah. I absolutely be. I'm a judge there. You know? Oh, okay. And I would not miss that event. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I get torn because it's fun to be a judge, but I want to see the cars too, so. Yeah, yeah, well, as a judge, you probably feel deprived because you can't just wander around. You have yeah. to, you're on a schedule, it's, you got your clipboard and your... Yeah, well, you, you feel rather privileged to be a judge. It's a big deal. Right. And then when you get out there on the field and you see the cars as a, whoa, you've got to make a decision. It, it, it is difficult. Um, and there's no substitute for seeing vehicles in the flesh. Yeah. You know, people, yeah. as enthusiasts, we, we watch and watch TV and look at books and everything, but yeah. there's nothing no, there's that replaces no, nothing seeing like something. nothing like walking around it and seeing the vehicle and, and the sounds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every car has got a unique sound. You know, the Ford V8 has a very different sound than a Chevy. Right. It's small block, different than a big block. And the Chrysler. You yeah, know. and the Chrysler motors too. So, yeah, I love it all. I mean, yeah. every bit of it. Well, Ed, thank you very much for taking the time to speak uh, with us today. Yeah, I appreciate you're it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Good seeing you. Good seeing you. So you've been involved in engines basically your whole career, correct? No question. And, yeah. And you've in been, fact, ever since I was 10 years old, that's all I wanted to do. And you've been involved in some of the coolest engine projects GM's ever done, right? 
Uh, I like to think so. Like, Even well, when I worked uh, as a co-op student, yeah. I, I would work during the day, like in the drafting room or whatnot, back in 69. Yeah. And second shift, I'd stay there all shift. I knew the dynamometer operators because one of them lived across the street from me. And they'd be running uh, a 427 L88s at that time, 454, 450s, 454, 460s, which would be LS6 and LS7. Right. And for me, it was just music to my ears to run these things, and, and they didn't mind letting me go in there and do that. So I'd work second shift just enjoying myself, go home and start over again at 7 a.m. up in the drafting room. Wow. So you've been, you've been right there in some of GM's glory days with the engines. And... So how is this going to translate to your new role at General Motors after all your career in engines of product development? Well, I had more than just engines. I did have both engineering and manufacturing right, experience right. for engines and transmissions. But from 1996 till 2001, uh, basically I was the chief engineer or vice president of engineering for truck. And we redid all the full-size trucks. Uh, pickup trucks, the sport utility vehicles, the midsize utility vehicles, all the vans and the medium duty trucks. And so that gave me a, a broad base of uh, engineering experience to go along with that. Plus I've had quality, uh, which gives me a broad global background on what we need to do quality wise. And so you, you bring all this together and it gives me a good background to, uh, to take on this job of uh, product development. Well, this is a very exciting time for General Motors. I mean, forget everything that's happened, uh, the news, the bankruptcy, everything. It must be very exciting for you to, you know, get your hands on the product development function and, and probably the most crucial time in the company's history. Uh, it, it's the opportunity of a lifetime. It, it's an amazing thing. We're trying to reinvent, reinvent not only the company, but the automobile. And so we're able to do that. We've got this advanced propulsion technology strategy right. where we're taking all the conventional powertrains and we're working on gas and diesel engines, uh, you know, doing things like direct injection, variable valve timing, variable valve lift, all the things to improve both the performance and fuel economy of the conventional engines along with six-speed transmissions. But it's well beyond that. We're rolling those out by the millions. In addition, we're, we're working on the electrification of the automobile. So we've got work on hybrids, we've got work on plug-in hybrids, we've got work on extended range electric vehicles, on fuel cells. And so, yeah, this is a, just a terrific time to be in, in product development. How is the uh, Volt platform, uh, I mean, you're going to use that in other things, and how, how are you pleased with the development of that to date? The Volt is right on schedule. Uh, obviously a high-risk program, uh, right. it's like a moonshot. And in fact, uh, uh, our tests right now are still moving along. I'd say the battery was probably one of the highest risk items, but it's coming along. Our tests are looking, are looking good. Um, right now, we will deliver the 40 miles of electric-only driving range, which was the, the right. commitment or the promise from, from day one. Mm -hmm. uh, we're currently, we've started building the, what we call the uh, integration vehicles, which means these are vehicles that look like the real production bolt with the real propulsion system, the real battery, the real motors, power electronics, and everything. And so as those are being built, they'll go into final test and and uh, validation, so we're right on schedule. But you know, the Volt architecture, you're, you're progressing it as you're locking in on the production. You're, you're already taking it way beyond, uh, haven't you? You've learned a lot more and you're gonna oh, yes. apply it to other platforms. And... You can apply it to other platforms, but I really think the most important thing we need to do 
with the Volt architecture is get from generation one to two to three, right. which is to say get the quality up and get the cost down right. so we're able to take it to high volume. Uh, production, uh, you know, when it, we hit the appropriate time. So it's you, not just a curiosity; it's a it's a real thing. Once yeah. you get it rolling, yes, it's like any other uh, high technology that that you see in the marketplace. You need to get through various generations before you can really get to the point where high volume makes sense, right. and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take it there. The other thing we're doing with the electrification is is we kind of backed up and said we don't really know which of these is the right answer. There didn't right. seem to be a silver bullet solution. Right. So we said, what's the essence? What's the real difference between this and conventional? And it was power electronics, it was electric motors, and it was batteries. So we took those as core technologies, brought those inside the company, and we're trying to become uh, very, very capable, make those strengths of General Motors, and then we can apply them to any one of these technologies, any one of these vehicles, and, and move very quickly. So it's, it's inherently just trying to be capable to move from conventional into the electrification. That's great. And so you're going to be doing both powertrain and product development, so you get to go back and play in powertrain when you're really... Uh, want to? Is that correct? Oh, oh you caught on to that, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, uh, yeah, we we have both, and it's good because we're actually bringing those two together into a into a strong team, and and the the organizations are working very well together, and uh, I do have an affinity for that, and it, it is uh, something I like to do, so I get the advanced technology reviews about once every three months, and it, so do you ever uh, just for old times' sake drop in? Do you ever? find out where something's going on and just kind of, if it's late at night or whatever, there's a project that people are excited about and you just kind of show up unannounced. Just yes, to, I do. That's good. I do. I, in fact, it's, uh, it's, it's a different situation for me. Uh, I don't feel that this is, this is work or a, or a job. Right. Um, I have been interested in uh, doing this kind of work since I was 10 years old. And so I've really found something in my life that I love to do. Great cars, great trucks. In fact, anything with, uh, with a powertrain was, was great for me. It could have been boats, motorcycles, or whatever. But uh, I found something I like to do, and I just tried to make a living at it. And so uh, for me, going here, going there, all hours of the day or night is just what I'm all about. So it's, it's a, a terrific opportunity for me. So you're a... I would say you're a hardcore enthusiast who just happened to have a, a great, you know, assignment. That's that's true. I also happen to have a great team. Right. Because I, I can get a lot of ideas, but I happen to have a, a, a very capable team that's able to implement those ideas. Well, that's great. Um, so you you feel with the electrification of the automobile, there's still going to be room for exciting vehicles. I think some enthusiasts are, you know, worried that well. It's not going to be exciting now, and I don't agree. How do you feel about that? To begin with, again, there's no silver bullet here. So we will have the electrification of the automobile. It, uh, it makes uh, a lot of sense, especially for smaller vehicles in cities and things of that right. nature. That doesn't mean that that's going to replace what we know today as, as conventional uh, powertrains and transportation. In my mind's eye, both of them are going to coexist for as far as the eye can see. And yes, we're going to make some very exciting vehicles. You need only look around the room here, yeah. and it's full of exciting vehicles. So do you think the uh, ICE, the internal combustion engine, has a lot more 
a long way to go in terms of efficiency. We can still do a lot more with it. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. In fact, uh, uh, we put together roadmaps many years ago. Uh, first, we put together a strategy, then developed roadmaps of technology. And uh, the next step on the roadmaps for ICE engines would be called homogeneous charge right. compression ignition. Right. And I think that uh, we're one of the leaders in that technology, if not the leader. We showed it two years ago where it could operate in a very thin uh, uh, band of speed load. And most recently we had everybody back in. We showed we could even idle with it, which no one thought was possible. We've got a much bigger bandwidth. So we're, we're actually ahead of schedule on developing that technology. And that's pretty exciting. In aggregate, if you look at the things that go into that, like direct injection, variable valve lift and timing, uh, the, those individual technologies give a certain amount of fuel economy, but if you put them together, the synergies in running HCCI give you about 15% more fuel economy. That's staggering, and isn't star it? starts to make the, uh, the gas engine look like a diesel, and so it's pretty exciting. So yep. yeah, there's, there's still a lot more room in the internal combustion engine. Another thing I'd point out is if you can run the engine at a single speed in load condition, like we do on, on the extended range electric vehicle, there's also a lot more fuel economy that you can get. And so there's a lot of activity on conventional as well as the electrification. Well, that's great. Well, yeah. um, it's good to know. I think enthusiasts are gonna be happy to hear you talk for us and we really appreciate your perspectives and we wish the best of luck to you. Go oh, thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable. Hopefully we can talk again. Yeah. Look forward to it. Great.